Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And joining us are two return guests back for uh, back for the first time at the same time, which is very exciting. Uh, returning from last week, we have David Canfield. Hello. And then from a few weeks back, Chris Murphy. Hi. Guys, we, we're excited to bring you in because I think uh, you are the Oscar nerdiest people on the Vanity Fair staff who aren't on this show on a regular basis, which means you're just going to keep finding ways to bring you back. Um <laughs> We're doing an Oscar flashback, and it was David's pick, and he picked Brokeback Mountain, which we will get into. And then we're also going to be talking about the release of Zola uh, and share an interview that I did with Riley Keough, one of the stars of the movie. Um, but before we get into any of that, there's all these little bits and bobs of awards news to talk about, um, which is always – this is the place that you're going to hear about it because we get in way into the weeds. Um, and maybe we'll start with the newest of it all. And David, you wrote yesterday about a rule change at the Directors Guild Awards, um, which as we were editing the story, it was like, I don't know that there's like an SEO-friendly way to write about this because like <laughs> only not that many people care about it. But the people who care about it listen to this show. Um, so do you want to explain why it seems like maybe a big deal that the DGA changed their their COVID rules? Sure. I think it's, it's a harbinger of, of more things to come, uh, more than like being – you know, individually significant, but essentially they have walked back their um, theatrical exemptions that were made in the aftermath of COVID-19, essentially meaning that uh, from June 15th, 2021 on, a film will have to play in theaters exclusively for at least seven days before it goes on streaming or digital platforms. The main outlet studio that this affects right now is Warner Brothers, since all of their 2021 movies, even into the back half of the year, are slated to go on HBO Max simultaneously, uh, including a big contender, we think, in Dune, which I think that 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 might change. The Academy would still deem it eligible under their current rules, but I I would be surprised if others did not follow in the DGA's footsteps and, and make similar rule changes. Yeah, because the Academy reconfirmed their rules not that long ago. So we don't expect them to kind of reverse course and change the theatrical window thing this year, but like probably for next year. Right. And the DGA is such an important stepping stone to Oscars and Dune being directed by a DGA nominee and Denis Villeneuve. uh, You'd think that that would be an important stop for it, uh, assuming that the campaign holds up as we expect it to. So 
Um, it'll be interesting to see how long and whether Warner Brothers holds on to this release strategy for Dune. Because in the case of this particular movie, it's been controversial since it was announced. Yeah. Um, well, can I ask a technical question? If if Warner's released Dune in like one small theater in L.A. for a week before it's, you know, day and date with uh, the wider release, would that count? I believe it would. I think that they just have to do something. Um, but they have... Yeah been pretty bullish on the fact that it's not doing that. I remember, I think Deadline Deadline had a report a couple months ago about, um, that basically said that they were changing course and Warner Brothers put out a statement saying it will be in theaters and on HBO Max simultaneously. I think that was via Twitter, um, like really reiterating that point. So they've, they've stuck to it, but it, it becomes a, a murkier situation in the context of awards if that's the route they want to go down with this movie, which based on the Venice premiere and all that other stuff, I think it does want to go down that road. Not to be, you know, doomsday here. I know we're a movie <laughs> podcast and not a, you know, a CDC podcast, but with the new Delta variant and sort of, I don't know, things look like they might not be as open as they are currently potentially this fall. So I don't know. Do you think that DJ would take that into consideration or would walk this back at all? Or am I being so, so apocalyptic? I don't know. I mean, I've been wondering about that. I I, I think that like the, this sort of rosy picture heading into summer is not as rosy heading into fall. So I I don't know, because if there is even a, a slight hit to the box office again, I don't think Warner Brothers would reverse their strategy. You know, the whole point was that was to compensate for that. So if it does get Absolutely. affected again, I don't see why they would, you know, make more concessions to rules like the DGAs. Yeah. Well, right now, Warner Brothers is the only studio that's kind of in this spot that has committed so much to day and date. Like, David, yeah. as you wrote yesterday, like Netflix and Amazon have generally had exclusive theatrical releases to qualify for things like the Oscars. There's not another studio like Disney. Well, actually, is... Black Widow is day and date on Disney Plus, so I guess in theory, yeah. Black Widow would be disqualified by this rule. It would be it's in July, and Disney's yeah. pretty case by case. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I think Jungle Cruise is going to be an Oscar contender, but I <laughs> hey, think that that hey, is. Hey, I, hey. I, I saw that trailer on the big screen, and it changed me. Jesse Plemons, <laughs> true supporting actor, Dark Horse. Yes. <laughs> it's going to happen eventually. It may as well be for Jungle Cruise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess, Chris, your point about the Delta variant and just, you know, anything we've learned about trying to predict the future in the last year and a half is that we shouldn't and that things can change on a dime. So it does seem like this rule change does directly target Dune, but that all the studios have the ability to kind of shift as needed. And for Dune, it does seem like, you know, it just announced its Venice slot, like it it is announcing its presence as an awards contender. So they, they would, I would think that they would walk back at least enough to get to qualify for DGA just to stay in the race that way. Um, all right. Talking about uh, other news around the Oscars, uh, this news broke last week, kind of right after we'd already recorded, but there's going to be new honorary Oscars that won't be handed on the main telecast, which if you are a hardcore awards nerd, you've been mad about <laughs> for years now. Um, but it's 
a great group. Uh, Danny Glover, Samuel L. Jackson, Elaine May, and Liv Ullman uh, will all receive honorary Oscars at the Governor's Awards, which this year will be in January. It's, you know, the Oscars are sort of back to normal on the schedule this year. You know, the qualifying only lasts till the end of December, but the Governor's Awards are usually in November. They're going to be in January next year. Um, I mean, does anyone have anything to say other than great for all these people getting honorary Oscars? Great for all these people getting honorary Oscars, but it always sort of grinds my gears when they give <laughs> an honorary Oscar to someone who hasn't won one in competition, who has deserved to win an Oscar in competition. Yep. With Samuel mm. Jackson, it's like a James Earl Jones situation all over again. Just sort of really, it feels like a consolation prize. Um mm-hmm. Instead of the actual thing when, you know, I would say, you know, both James Earl Jones and Samuel Jackson absolutely have deserved to win competitive Oscars, uh, you know, in their career. And I know it's no one's fault. It's not like, you know, it's not (laughs) the uh, the special or the honorary Oscars fault that this happened. But it just it doesn't I don't love it. Well, don't forget Spike Lee won an honorary Oscar and then won his first competitive Oscar like two years later. So, you know, sometimes it, it sets the tee for the for the main competition to win. It loosens the lid. <laughs> <laughs> what other metaphors can we throw at this? Stepping stone. <laughs> So with a uh, with Elaine May and Liv Ullman, maybe because they're you know further along in their lives, like less active in their screen careers, like maybe that feels a little bit more of an appropriate time to to give these awards. Yeah, to me at least I totally agree with Chris. I mean, I think that the Spike Lee example was a good example too of them just being really late to the party. I mean, Spike Lee is someone who the Academy had pretty widely ignored until Black Klansman, um, and I think maybe it does help give them a little bit more visibility in that context. Um, going forward, but especially with someone like, I mean, Samuel Jackson, it's just like totally deserves it, but he should have already been up on that stage. Yeah. I would, I would read a list of people who have won honorary Oscars and then after that won a competitive Oscar. I'm sure, I'm sure Spike Lee was not the first, but I bet it doesn't happen very often. Don't hold your breath for Tyler Perry, though. <laughs> no, I don't know. Medea's coming back, so you never know. At least Tyler Perry got to give his speech during the main Oscars. You know that I think you know for Indeed. as messy as messy as last year's Oscar, this year's Oscars were that not feel like that happened a lifetime ago. Like I think a lot of us nerds were really grateful that they managed to do that, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not holding my breath for him to do it again. Yeah, that's another element of it that is just sort of like, you know, they get a clip during the main presentation, maybe when it really, you know, there is, you know, a huge event, you know, uh, Samuel Jackson, Elaine May, um, like, I would love to see them all, you know, be celebrated at the Academy. And I'm one of those people who like famously, I don't hate long award shows. I'm like, it's an award show. <laughs> that's why you're on this podcast, actually. We're, we're on this a pro a long show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's why I got hired. Okay, cool. I love it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'd be more than happy happy to figure out, you know, a, a way to to make that happen. But, you know, yeah. but it's honestly, it's a great thing for all of them. And they're all very deserving. So, yeah, I don't want to uh, take too much credit, but we did talk about Danny Glover and Witness right before this announcement. So I'm pretty sure that the little gold man bump helped him. Uh, uh, pretty, we pretty sure did. One. We sure yeah. did. And color purple. <laughs> Not the star of Witness, but an important supporting role. And I just think that helped put him over the edge. Yeah. You know. Um, Okay, last thing, back to uh, how things qualify for awards. Uh, The Emmys adjusted 
their rules on a couple things last week. Um, kind of the the quicker one maybe we can talk about is that they've made it so that you cannot win an Oscar or be nominated for an Oscar for documentary or contribute yourself as a um, documentary for Oscars and also win an Emmy, which has been happening. It's happening this year. Um, I noticed that like the a song from a documentary about Stacey Abrams is in the Emmy competition, even though it was also being plugged for Oscars. The Oscars kind of changed this on their end a couple years ago. I don't totally get why the Emmys took so long to do this. Um, we all, I think, kind of famously remember O.J. Made in America won the Oscar mm-hmm. as well as the Emmy for documentary. Um, this is just kind of wildly overdue and is going to help clear things up, right? Like, is there is there a downside to this? I don't see one. No, I don't think so. <laughs> no pick double a, dipping documentaries. Pick a lane, guys. <laughs> you're either a TV show or you're a movie. Everyone knows that now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the line between film and television is completely clear. No one's going to ever debate it again. Never been clearer. Yeah, Never been clearer it, than it is today. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose it, it will be kind of interesting to see like what choices some films make, like 13th, the Ava DuVernay documentary, uh-huh. won a bunch of Emmys, and I think probably would have won that Oscar if not for... OJ that year. So, it, you know, it's it's an interesting balance. Yeah. So the other the other rule change that got into and reading from a variety article from last week is that um, nominees and winners in the performer category can have their their certificate and statue say performer instead of actor or actress. Um, and this gets into a debate that I think is going to be very visible over the coming years, which is that we have these gender divided acting categories for actor and actress. And there are increasingly more actors who identify as non-binary. Um, and they use the example in this variety piece of Asia Kate Dillon, a um, non-binary performer who... Uh, asked them to clarify their gender distinctions and eventually submitted themselves in the supporting actor category. So basically, if you are non-binary now, you still have to pick a category. You have to pick actor or actor to submit yourself, but they won't force you to kind of embrace that if you win. It it seems like a solution, but it's not solving the bigger thing. And I'm, I don't know how anyone's going to solve this, but it does feel like a problem that's going to have to get solved soon. Yeah, it feels Who can like solve a it? Tem- yeah, <laughs> another very clear distinction. No, um, not at all. I think it feels like a temporary solution, or it's sort of like it's sort of broaching. Like, wow, not to use the same metaphor, it's a stepping stone into having a bigger conversation about you know performance and and gender identity and whatnot. That I don't think the the academy is necessarily ready or willing to have right now, but yeah. is definitely something that is coming, I think, fast and furious and that needs to that needs to happen very, you know, that needs to happen again a little while ago. But um, that is hurtling, hurtling at the Academy, like at the speed of light. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it points out that the MTV Movie and TV Awards and the TCA Awards have non-gendered acting categories, which I think is kind of the simplest solution to just have it be like best performer, best supporting performer and leave it at that. But I think that's a huge loss. I think you lose a ton. You lose more acting statues if you're the Oscars and trying to get people to watch. You don't want to hand out too fewer acting Oscars. So I don't I haven't been able to get past that and figure out how you maybe maintain four, but but get rid of those gender distinctions and don't have it so that it's all men winning, because I think, as we all know, like, yeah. Yeah, the, that was my concern. The gender distinction between who's getting these this visibility is still is still there. Yeah, in in television, I feel like like the TCAs the, those categories actually lean more toward women now. But I think that reflects the direction that television has gone in, and the critics with, and their taste and, exactly, and, the, yeah. and critics mm-hmm. and sort of shows that maybe are a little bit less watched but really well liked. But I don't think you would see that same tilt in the within the academy's choices yeah um i wonder if this is this is finally the opportunity to split drama and comedy or something like that oh with the oscars yeah i mean it would never happen but throwing it out there 
comedy Oscar at Medea Tyler. <laughs> it's true. We, we have given him the lane. And the Golden Globes are on their way out. So it's time for to take the one good thing they, they were doing. Yeah. Okay, let's get out of the present and go back to the past and start the Oscar flashback segment on Brookback Mountain. Um, We got a lot of feedback from you guys, the listeners, about this movie, which I was delighted to hear and I'm going to try to incorporate into it. Um, But David, since you were the one who picked it, I want to throw to you first. But I want to preempt and just say, when you picked Brokeback Mountain, I was like, okay, like, we all remember Brokeback Mountain. Like, it's a very well-known movie. We all saw it. Like... Everyone remembers it's a great movie. And then I was so, like, blown away by how great it was, despite having seen it, I know, multiple times in the mid-2000s. So first of all, thank you. And then second of all, um, why did you pick Brokeback Mountain? So I actually have not seen this movie since it came out when I was 13 years old. And when I saw it, it was a very formative, kind of intense movie for me. At the time, uh, I lived with my family in New Zealand, and I would download like torrents of Oscar movies. And I remember, and I would share them with a lot of- The MPAA uh, is coming for you, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) This was like, this was like the height, I feel like of torrenting though, um, (laughs) globally. And I would, you know, most of them I would watch with my family, but this one I remember very vividly watching by myself. Um, I wasn't out at the time or anything like that. And I loved the movie when I was that age. But there was something about it that I felt like I could almost never return to it. And I honestly cannot articulate why. Um, so when you told me about this series, I was like, okay, this is this is my opportunity. <laughs> and it was completely different from what I remembered. Um, and it was particularly, I was very moved in a surprising way by the beginning. Because I didn't, it just didn't click, I guess, when you're that age. That like, you can have a half hour of a movie of just two guys like very quietly getting to know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I guess we'll, we'll start there, but it, it was, I was very, not surprisingly moved by revisiting it, but it had been a long time. So it was like kind of the, the quietness of the movie that, that surprised you a second. I mean, a, like a, we don't get major studio movies like this much at all anymore, but I think the, the kind of revolutionariness of the way they set up this relationship, I think sex out to you more, the more you know about film, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, my relationship to film has completely changed and I've seen a lot of queer movies since I saw this one, which was probably my first. And I think it holds up in a surprising way because movies of this scale that get this kind of awards attention and just commercial attention even, there haven't been very many yeah. <laughs> queer movies. Um, I don't think any have had as much Oscar success uh, as this one. I mean, unless you count something like Call Me By Your Name. And even then, I, it wasn't in the running for Best Picture in the way this one was. So... Um, yeah, it was it was a strange experience to to realize that the the degree to which it held up in that respect. Yeah, one of the uh, the people texting us on subtext, Maura Smith, uh, asked if we see a connection between this and Carol, um, which was another <laughs> kind of famous Oscar underperformer. Like Brokeback Mountain, obviously, you know, was the best picture frontrunner until it lost a crash. We'll talk about that for sure. Um, I think they're they're pretty different movies. I. Th- think, although they obviously have a lot of similarities, I think Carol was much less successful with the Oscars even than Brokeback Mountain. Um, but I do think there's, you know, if you're if you're looking for like unexamined homophobia in this giant awards thing, I think those are two interesting examples to look at. Yeah. I remember a couple months ago, Mark Harris had tweeted just that LGBTQ re- representation at the Oscars is really finicky and it's very low, and it's not given necessarily a lot of attention. So I, I do see a parallel with Carol. It was a movie that 
I think people were surprised it wasn't nominated for Best Picture in the same way people were maybe surprised Brokeback didn't win Best Picture. Um, and it, it did feel related to um, it being a really, uh, that was, that's just a very queer film, you know, the texture of it, the filmmaking, um, Todd Haynes <laughs> giving it is all there. Um, and so <laughs> it definitely felt related in a different kind of way, but I, I do see a parallel there and just more broadly with this ongoing narrative. Yeah. Um, Chris, you came on a few weeks ago and talked about Chicago as your kind of uh, Oscar radicalization moment. So I'm assuming that when Brokeback Mountain came in, came out, you were all in on on the Oscar narrative for this. Yeah, I mean, I had a similar similar experience to David, not through torrenting, but through physical DVD <laughs> players um, of watching it like, you know, in my teens, you know, like early teens or, you know, 12, 13 and being really and not really understanding all of it for sure. And I think that's from rewatching this week. It was there were a lot of gaps in my, you know, <laughs> I've watched it now a couple of times at different stages of my life. And I think every time I see sort of something else and um but I remember being so entranced and so obsessed with also the female performances. This time for me, really, the female yes. performances stuck out because totally. I was never, I was not paying attention when I was 12. When I watched it when I was 20, it was not paying attention to that necessarily as well. But Anne Hathaway and Michelle Williams really do some, you know, incredible, incredible work in the film and have really... Uh, a really sort of a tight ropey hard line to walk i was i mean i was talking to katie about the anne hathaway phone call scene oh it's is <laughs> excellent it's so difficult and she's so cold but she's so emotional uh, she's wearing that big blonde wig it just really it just it's it's really excellent um so yeah i think it's it's one of those movies that you know i think a lot of you know queer uh kids and queer or queer now millennials watched in sort of like the cover of night and like didn't really talk about it to anyone and just sort of like had it and then like maybe have not sort of returned to it um or they return to it quite often because it's something so special to them they hold it so dear um but i was more of a david and i hadn't really watched it i watched it i think once uh before this in my like early 20s um and it really it still hit but it hit different I will say. It's also so sad, like as a movie to revisit, like it just like rings you out in this way that it's 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 I feel like you do have to kind of like brace yourself to to go back into this movie. It is quite long and which it's it's slow. It really does sort of take its time in a way that like in our, you know, action franchise F9 world, we don't really allow (laughs) movies to sort of do anymore, which I Mm -hmm. think which is deeply upsetting and uh, uh, sad to me. Um, So the fact that we do sort of have, you know. 30 minutes of almost, you know, utter silence, you know, they barely speak for the first, you know, 42 minutes of the movie. There was something really magical and really, uh, really special and sort of like, you know, old, as old Hollywood as 2005 can be about that. But but then also in that sequence, and I think especially as the romance starts to build, like no shot is wasted, like every single glance from one of them or a landscape shot or a shot of a wolf, like stalking the sheep, like it all sets up the story and kind of the the metaphor of these, you know, two men out in the wilderness kind of finding themselves. Um, It was was amazing to me, like how deliberate the entire thing is. And like Ang Lee is known as a deliberate filmmaker. It shouldn't have been the biggest surprise, but for a movie that's like expansive and spans all these different years that it's every single shot builds on top of each other to tell that story. Nothing is wasted at all. Yeah. It's really, it's, yeah, it's really economic in that way. I will say it was also fun that we watched this movie this week because there was a viral video of sheep herding. Did anyone see that on no. Twitter? <laughs> of, the, of an aerial view of, of sheep yeah, herding. 
and how it, they're sort of like very fluid and they go out and they go in. It's, it's a very it's a very funny tweet. Uh, cheaper fluid as are the you know sexualities of <laughs> NS and Jack, and I sort of love that. Who knew that sheep were the metaphor the whole time? Yeah, it's really it all comes um, back to sheep. Joanna, you and I were almost full-grown grown-ups when Brokeback Mountain came out as the uh, <laughs> as the aged veterans of this podcast right now. Um, what what are your Brokeback Mountain memories from 2005? Yeah, I don't. I mean, actually, it's kind of fuzzy to me. I think I had just moved to San Francisco. Um, like honestly, I was trying to remember. Like a memory I had is the uh, this guy I was living with at the time was determined to learn the score and his guitar, so he would play that all the time around the house, which was interesting. <laughs> it must have been kind of easy, right? Uh, it's pretty spare score. Yeah, but it's and it's beautiful. Like it's a really beautiful <laughs> score. Um, is it beautiful when your then, roommate plays it though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was kind of nice to have that ambient music in the house. And then also, I have this really strong memory of uh, this is not about Brokeback Mountain; it's about Crash. But I have this really strong, which we're inevitably going to talk about. But yes. this really strong memory of like I, I like almost bumped into some guy on the street, um, and he was like, "Let's crash into each other like the movie." And I was like, "What's happening what? right now?" <laughs> it's a real thing that someone said to me once on the streets of San Francisco. So um, that's but terrifying. I want. I, <laughs> I know it's uh, anyway. Um, so let's go back to oh, I wanted to go back to uh, what Chris is saying about Anne Hathaway on the phone. Something that I read that I thought was so interesting that Anne Hathaway said that um, Ang Lee directed her two different takes on that scene. One in which her character knows everything. And one in which her character is completely um, ignorant of everything that's going mm-hmm. on. And uh, and then she said in the final cut, both takes made it. There's a blend of both takes yeah. in the final wow. cut. And that's what you makes me yeah, think that's... Really yeah. Yeah, that. yeah. I think that's what makes that scene so compelling. Because you're like, does she, does she, does she, doesn't she, does she? Like, what's, that, what's happening? Uh, I was so struck watching it this time of the way when he mentions that they sh- that the sheep herding in Brokeback Mountain and he like that he knows what that place is and the way her eyes just change a tiny bit of mm-hmm. of processing yeah. that bit of information because I kind of watch it yeah. knowing that she knew the story about the tire blowing out was a lie but not knowing that he and Ennis had had this relationship but you're right it's it's impossible to track and she's doing so much with her face in that tight close up to give you all of that yeah and I mean th- there's some wild things that happened um this award season um <laughs> which we're going to talk about yeah. but the fact that like Michelle Jake and Heath all got nominated and and should have been nominated as well I think um yeah. but yeah but she it's, was like the she was like the baby kind of like proving herself at this point right you know she was still princess diaries and yeah, you know somehow but I'm not sure that was Michelle Williams, you know, anymore. Wasn't she still uh, like in Dawson's Creek boat uh, to a certain degree? So like, I, but, but, you I'm know, I'm just going to look this up because it is like, you know, it's before her Kelly Reichardt movies. It's before like a lot of her more respected stuff. But it like it felt like she had made a movie called Land of Plenty. Like she'd been making some indie films at this point. And I think she was just less famous, you know, like Katie Holmes is the breakout from Dawson's Creek. Like I think she was more of a unknown factor than Anne Hathaway was going into oh, this. Oh, oh, don't, don't, uh, don't preach the Dawson's Creek to me, Katie. I was, I was there. Um, but yeah, no, I mean. Oh, she'd also been in The Station Agent. I feel like that's another big one. Like, that was like a reasonably big indie film that she had yeah. been part of to be like, but, oh, yeah. 
but yeah, I mean, like, uh, as, as you all said beautifully, like this, this film, which I don't think I had seen, even though I loved it when I saw it in theaters, um, I don't think I had seen since theaters, the theaters. And I just, I, there was so much of it. I remembered so well, I remembered Linda Cardellini taking her shoes off. Like I remember mm. like every detail of this film. I forgot that Kamara was in it. Um, uh, I don't, I didn't know who she was. And, uh, and David Harbour shows up also in Anna Faris. Ferris, With Anna like, Ferris. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. um but but it's it's still just as like completely arrestingly beautiful as it was uh when when we first saw it and I think that um you know looking not just the big controversy of this award season which is crash winning best picture but like when you look at all the other films that were up which is like Munich Goodnight and Good Luck Capote are also in the category and like all good films. Munich, I rewatched recently. I liked it more, you know, when I rewatched it recently. But, like, Brokeback is really the enduring legacy yeah. of that year. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, without question, far and away. Um, so, yeah. I'm so, oh, thank you, David, for picking it. I'm so, so happy to rewatch it. Yeah. I was, I, I, I did it. <laughs> I rewatched it. It was a big deal for me. <laughs> Uh, my my comeback, like my takeaway from watching it again, is just like even though I, you're right that it is like the the takeaway from 2005 year in movies, like I think we're underrating it. Like I honestly mm-hmm. feel like maybe because it's so sad or because it's like such a famous Oscar snub or something that like we don't talk about it enough somehow. I feel like it's sort of like not to get into you know the homophobia of it all, but I do feel like it became a little bit of a joke. I mean, I feel like yeah. popular culture, you know took it and sort of ran with it. I mean, a family, I remember family guy scenes and, you know, just sort of like really crass, sort of boiling it down to, oh, it's like the gay cowboy movie and uh-huh. whatnot. And I do think that whether or not, I mean, whether or not that matters, I do think that can sort of taint or sort of like, you know, ding a legacy a little bit or at least lessen, you know, the fuller impact of a piece or whatnot. I just remember, be, you know, being inundated and and sort of just like flooded with all of these sort of just like, crass and sort of like you know like ha ha like you know d minus jokes about the movie and i think for some you know that could have overshadowed its actual artistry yeah for, you know and i'm talking you know i was a teenage boy so that's what you know that's it yeah <laughs> i mean i definitely hear the score and i remember like I'm not even specific parodies but like for years like that bit of score would come up to be like oh they're gonna make a gay joke right now yeah. about whatever is happening in the context of this yeah and we had a um, we had a text from Hale Sargent who <laughs> I have to say any time that they wrote Crash it was a CR and then the poop emoji which is really funny. Um, but they just said um, please mention in discussion that those 2006 Oscars took place in an era of very anti-gay rhetoric that at least for me left some deep scars. In 2004, 2005, 15 states passed anti-gay marriage amendments. Eight more states would go on to do so in 2006. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember the Crash Oscars mm. had an outsized feeling of importance. Brokeback Mountain was a chance to get a historic win in our column um and even worse poor dolly parton's song about love and tolerance from transamerica lost that night to heart out here for a pimp i love um, that song i love yeah, both songs but really I just, song. <laughs> it, is, it is a good song uh, the conclusion through. of that i just want to say for hale fortunately times change i'm now happily married and an adoptive dad and straight and cis actors no longer bogart career roles but crash and carl rove can keep each other company in their same 2000s trash pile um, oh, my I know. That's so sweet. <laughs> Congratulations. Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> I know. I, I will say on the straight actors playing gay roles, 
control debates. I totally, I very much am, you know, I have evolved, I think, and would let, you know, want to see, you know, queer actors playing queer parts. But I do think both Heath and, and uh, Jake are delivering, like, career best work in this film. They're like, phenomenal. I really, I think Heath they're both phenomenal. I'm really, you know? I'm going through Jake Gyllenhaal's filmography right now, and I cannot really find another part that I feel as strongly about from him and Heath I mean I think it goes without I just I really I really do think they they absolutely nailed <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I was uh, I was I, I was watching a bunch of Jake Gyllenhaal interviews about like many many different retrospective interviews like five years later ten years later whatever about about making this film and like you know, I think he knows it's the best thing that he's ever done. And also <laughs> something that I, I mean, it's so sad, of course, because like, of course, these are all Jake retrospectives because we don't get Heath retrospectives mm. on all of this. But something that I thought was really that made me really emotional is that like, of course, Jake talks about like Heath and what it was like to work with him and and how it was amazing. But like he tells the same story over and over again about how he got a dog named Atticus um, because he wanted to like, it was going to like help him figure out how to like play a cowboy. I don't know. He got a dog. Yeah, how so, like, so he has all these memories of this dog. And then he keeps talking about how his dog died. And he like, he, he tells that story over and over again. And I'm like, but he doesn't talk about Heath dying. And I'm like, is this a safer way for Jake to talk about like someone he loved and lost that, that he had on the set no. of Brokeback? Like oh I, I might be like way overthinking him, but I was just like, he just keeps telling this story about his dog, but doesn't talk about Heath that way. And, um, but obviously like loved, loved Heath so much and loved working with him. And I think, I think it is, like Jake has always given really good answers about like, were you scared to play this part? You know, like blah, blah. And he's just like, no, I don't know. I wasn't raised that way. And like, maybe naively I should have been more scared to play this part, but like, it just seemed like a really, really good script and it's Ang Lee. And I just, I've got really excited to do it. So, um, but his part does, I think remain kind of, unusual in like a mainstream Hollywood movie where his like he is has so much sexual desire in his face and he's so forward yes. and he's the reason this entire relationship happens and I think that's still really unusual to see in a movie of this size and it it there is a level of bravery that I feel like I can say that he had just to be able to kind of go for it and really put himself out there in mm-hmm. in the desire in Jack and you almost don't get the whole scope of that until Ennis goes to his parents house after Spoiler alert! Oh, no. and um, and 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 the they're talking really about his life in a way where it's clear that everyone knows they his family know not only knows but he was talking about plans and talking mm-hmm. about building a life with a man um, in a way that for seeing that on yeah seeing that on film especially in a period context is quite radical. Um, and I, I totally agree with Chris's earlier point about why the film might be underrated. I mean, I remember those Oscars, even as it, you know, I've just been getting into the Oscars and they felt so, so significant because of the climate around it and the fact that this movie could win. Um, I, I remember that Heath didn't present because he was being asked to make a gay joke. And it's just so impressive that I need both- to remember that. Yeah, I remember that. He, um, yeah, I think Jake had told that story years later. It's just so impressive that both he and Jake really understood the need to sort of not wade into those waters, even just a stupid throwaway joke that is, you know, in one of those Oscar presenting monologues that honestly you'll hear even now. I mean, I don't think that that culture has changed that much. Oh, no. Um, 
in the fact that they, I think, understood the gravity of the film and taking it seriously. Um, yeah, that's that's quite a legacy for for those actors in addition to the film. Yeah, I was so struck by like this movie is sad. Obviously, is like sad for all the characters in it. But watching it with Heath Ledger being gone is this whole other layer of sadness that like really struck me this time around just the early scenes were like it's Ennis and Alma like when they're still actually in love and watching him and Michelle Williams together and knowing that that's them falling in love and and then like as they age over the course of the movie and you see Heath Ledger who's you know 25 then or something like aged up to play someone in his 40s which he never got to do it's really heartbreaking and I it Mm -hmm. made me think about how his like legacy is a lot tied up with the Joker which is another great performance that's what he won the Oscar for like there's a reason for it but this is this performance is so full and has so much range to it and it really um it kind of drives home what we lost and the fact that he lost this Oscar to Philip Seymour Hoffman like that's a real uh, double (laughs) man well yeah I mean that's the thing is like I I think people do talk about that Joker win sometimes is like a make good for him not winning for Brokeback but like can you can you argue with Philip Seymour Hoffman having an Oscar? You can't. Would I give it to him for Capote? I don't know, but I am like really, really happy that Philip Seymour Hoffman won an Oscar while he could. So um, at least they both have them. But um, yeah, it's, it's a real, real emotional journey. And and it's interesting. I was, I was trying to do some little bit of research into like why, why outside of the very real, very salient points about homophobia um, that you guys made, why Crash won? And there's um, this vulture oral history about Crash that does not get into um, (laughs) those topics, which it should. But there is an an interesting, like, sort of granular examination of the campaign that I didn't really know anything about. Does anyone want to hear the granular details of the Crash campaign? Okay, first of all, so, like, it it premiered at TIFF. Nobody wanted it out of TIFF. Even though I got a standing ovation, nobody wanted it. And then um, it's Lionsgate, right, that grabbed it. But, like, they had this idea that, like, this was going to be a word of mouth hit. So they decide to release it in May rather than in traditional um, Oscar season in, in the fall and winter. And, uh, and that means by that, by the time September rolled around, they, it was uh, uh, on DVD in homes Mm. and uh, they then took the then unprecedented. Now everyone does it move of sending a copy of the DVD to every single person in the screen actors guild, Mm -hmm. um, which is something that they did instead of like buying a billboard downtown LA or like all these other things that people usually do. And so then, so the, the SAG uh, award for best ensemble goes to crash and uh, they weren't nominated for golden globe. Uh, so, and Brokeback really was sort of the dominant narrative. Like it was assumed that Brokeback was going to win and they, when they won the SAG, everything kind of changed. Yeah. And, um, and that's, and that's when, uh, you know, the narrative shifted and there's a, there's a few other, there's some like interesting quotes in there about like, you know, Oprah also really embraced Crash. Like, mm. she had the whole cast on her show. She talked about this, like, moment where she was uh, discriminated against at the Hermes counter in uh, in Paris. That was her People Crash moment. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. That's a famous People story. Still, that's a famous yeah. story. I did not know that was tied to a Crash moment. Yeah, okay. it's a Crash story. So, like, 
Um, and, and then Crash is like appealing. It's, it's an actor movie because it's an ensemble movie. And, and this, the actors are the biggest voting branch in the Academy. So like, I don't know, all of that stuff. I mean, I would call Brokeback an actor's movie too. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but uh, all of that stuff in addition to everything else that we've been talking about. But like they, they did have like a really canny strategy behind Crash and this idea of like, we sent DVDs in paper slip cases. And I was like, wow, as someone who, who votes now, I'm like, yeah, that's what everyone does. I have tons screeners. of them. Screeners. <laughs> Crash invented screeners? Like, there's questions about that. And you know what? So, and yeah. You deserve an Oscar for inventing screeners. You know I what? Guess, so, I guess so, yeah. I remember, and again, I feel like Crash like aged poorly like that night. Like it's not it's one of those things that like immediately people sort of knew was uh, the wrong decision. Jack Nicholson rather... reading that envelope, he was just like, "Huh?" But I, yeah, I remember having also, you know, watched it on DVD. Didn't get a screener, but definitely did. My family did buy the DVD. They were really taking it back. I think. It, it's just such a sort of a picture of where we were at the time of, you know, of uh, in terms of race relations and how far we really needed to go. But it felt like it felt like something important, at least to my black family at the time. Like, oh, cra- oh, this, you know, this was very interesting. I remember them talking about it a lot. Um, maybe not in a way that they were talking about Brokeback Mountain. So I do think it did that sort of word of mouth strategy ended up working on people and the Oprah of it all. But it is disappointing <laughs> it is yeah. ultimately disappointing and i remember even being like performatively mad about it when i was you know 13 like oh, i would have loved to crash one. be in your middle school where you were like talking about <laughs> was crash. Like, what are you talking about <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah what movie about race relations circa 2005 2006 will the academy embrace versus what movie yeah. about like a queer love story in yeah. that era will the academy embrace and i think you you get your answer i mean yeah. i remember um i forget if it was diana or larry uh, the writers um, but one of them told a story about like running into clint eastwood at a campaign event um and he hadn't seen the movie and they were just kind of knocked out by that like the fact that he hadn't seen it and it, it's just this kind of this barrier i think that a film like brokeback faces where then after the fact its narratives is all about losing and why did it lose and what, you know, and it becomes this sort it's, you know, it's a, a fantastic film, but it becomes wrapped up in these questions that I think is what maybe surprises all about just how good it is, is, is you, you, we become kind of consumed by the narrative at the expense of like Ang Lee making a pretty immaculate movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was the whole thing at the time that like, you know, John Wayne never would have like, been right. in this movie like it's like disrespecting the legacy of the cowboy somehow which is <laughs> like such like one of the most short short-sighted oh, critiques boy. of it i got the like, when this came out i was in college and had just taken a class on westerns and like kind of like looking at all the way that western the archetypes are used to tell all these different stories about america and masculinity and family and society and brokeback mountain uses so many of those like down to the white hat white hats and the black hats that they wear and it's mm-hmm. so in conversation with the western genre mm-hmm. that the fact that people couldn't see that is um you know i hope i hope honeyswood has seen it since then yeah i what? wouldn't bet on that but <laughs> <laughs> what what really hurts i mean like the best picture loss hurts um but the loss that really hurts is the cinematography loss because it mm. went to oh memoirs 
memoirs, memoirs of a geisha, which is like Ooh. such such a, a problematic year. <laughs> such a does that movie even exist sort of movie. And I'm just sort of like the cinematography and Brokeback is so beautiful, so gorgeous. And I was it's like, incredible. I mean, Ang Lee won Best Director as as he should have, but I'm like that cinematography loss. That's that's a crime right there. You can even see some of that cinematography. I mean, and like like it, it's interesting to think about like what's the legacy or what sort of like has broke back rot and because in like in terms of queer love stories we see it in carol we see it a little bit in call me by your name but there hasn't really been a broke back moment but at least in the, the sort of the stunning sort of the, uh, gorgeous cinematography i mean like i was getting like nomadland vibes yeah from watching yeah it, totally, which is totally. like, you know i was like oh this is where i could see how you know how that inspired this film which was really cool to sort of see that you know 15 16 years later yeah, it really, you know, Chloe Zhao and Ang Lee not being born in America and making these two, like, really fundamental Westerns about Deeply the American, American frontier. It's really incredible. I, w- I wonder if they know each other. Because Rich is not here, I have to represent God's Own Country 2017 and say, like, <laughs> no, no way does that, that film has got so much, it was so much to broke back. Yeah, I was, uh, was going to say that, yeah. weird, like, I'd seen that more recently and it reminded me so much of that movie. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't, yeah. I was not prepared for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the... The other thing that I want, oh, oh, uh, last, maybe, maybe last Oscar stat of that year is that Ang Lee was the first non-Caucasian winner of Best Director, of the Best Director category. So, I mean, to the Oscars credit, there have been many more since, at least. It's true, but I just sort of shifted. (laughs) Yeah. Ang Lee also has won Best Director twice without a Best Picture win to go with it, which is wild. That's a crazy statistic. That's, (laughs) that is really wild. Um, all right. Maybe I'll close this out. Can I read one more uh, listener comment before? Yeah. Obviously, we can talk about Brokeback Mountain for years. But Alex Rongen um, wrote, this movie profoundly changed my life. When it premiered, I was in high school and was deeply struggling with my sexuality. Brokeback was a watershed moment for me because it showed how unfulfilling life was for those two repressed and closeted characters. Mm-hmm. I left the theater and immediately came out to my parents because I knew I didn't want a life with as much anguish as what Ennis and Jack endured. For some oh. reason, the depiction of a life worse than being an outcast for my friends and family was more motivating to me than any vision of a brighter future. It losing Best Picture still feels like a personal affront, but the impact the film had on loads of queer folks like me is worth more than any statue. I love that. Mm. Wow. I feel that. Yeah. yeah, A lot of people kind of sent like similar, like really personal stories about this. So I'm just, um, I'm glad that we got a chance to like kind of take, take stock of that. We should talk about this movie more. Well, I mean, and as much as we're an awards podcast and we love talking about awards, like, you know, what is true is when we look back at these years, like, it's it's almost almost it's often not the best picture right winner that yeah. is the best picture of the year and and that's okay and i would encourage as, as chris and i did you know kids who watched it uh, when it came out to revisit it i mean it i wouldn't maybe not cathartic revisiting it but it was a very moving experience going back to it as an adult proudly out uh it it, it made a difference for sure absolutely it was yeah it's it's an incredible, it's an incredible, it's really on every cylinder, storytelling, cinematography, acting, directing, it it hits and it's, yeah, it deserves, and it somehow still deserves more. <laughs> Ever since I watched Ikea, I just think of the shirts and just like start welling up with tears again. Like you talk about like vivid visual imagery in a movie. Yeah. 
Okay, back to the present. We want to talk about Zola, which is finally coming out in theaters. I guess it's out in theaters now via A24, um, a year and a half after it debuted at Sundance in January of 2020. Um, It does seem like a great movie to have gotten to play for a huge audience before those became impossible. And it also seems wise for them to have waited this long um, because it's getting to go out in theaters. It's kind of capturing this huge buzz cycle for itself all over again. Um, It's an adaptation of a Twitter thread, very famous one. Um, It's directed by Janexa Bravo, uh, co-written by Bravo and Jeremy O'Harris. Um, we'll have an interview that I did with Riley Keough, who is um, one of the main characters in the movie, is kind of this um, self-described demon named Stephanie who takes our heroine Zola on this horrible road trip. Um, and Chris, I had asked you to come join us because you had we had been talking about doing an interview for this. It didn't work out, but I knew that you had a lot of thoughts on the movie and also Jeremy O'Harris, whose career in theater you've been following. Um, and so then you finally saw Zola. So how did it, how did it stack up with um, what you've been following from Jeremy O'Harris? I mean... It- I have to say, I loved, I loved the film. And it really was like part and parcel with what I sort of love about Jeremy O'Harris and his work, which is always controversial. It's always going to, it's always going to elicit a response and sort of challenge you in a way. But at the end of the day, it's so, there's an honesty and just an absolute like truth to it. It's, he's, I would say he's sort of like a provocateur. Like he wants mm-hmm. to cause conversation. He's he's a provocateur on the internet, on Twitter. He's got this amazing these amazing TikToks and whatnot. He's unafraid to say exactly what needs to be said. But at the end of the day, what he's saying is not only true, but it's incredibly well executed and it's incredibly potent. And I think we see that we saw the slave play. His uh, Tony nominated. The Tonys have somehow not happened. It's That's 2019. Crazy. crazy. <laughs> his 2019 um, Tony nominated play slave play, um, which has been nominated for the most Tonys of any play ever. Um, uh, wow. And uh, which I saw three times uh, in theaters. And we see it in a completely in sort of a not a completely different way, but in a through a different lens with his work with Janixa Bravo on Zola, which takes a really thorny and sort of ridiculous subject, so the ridiculous subject matter, the Twitter thread um, by Zola, and presents it in a way that is not what you would necessarily think when you read that Twitter thread. I think there are a lot of really great reviews. I think Richard, our critic Richard Lawson, did an amazing job of pointing out that there's uh, a delicateness and a, and a wanness and sort of a lot of sort of space and depth um, to it's not sort of a madcap, you know, a hijinks, spring breakers sort of, you know, crazy road trip. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of uh, sadness and a lot of stillness and a lot of silence. Um, but it all comes from a place of sort of Zola's truth in that moment and in and what she's experiencing and seeing it through her eyes and what she would have probably been going through um, rather than making, you know, the most uh, explosive or, you know, hilarious or, you know, crazy film, um, which I just really, uh, which feels right, like part and parcel with who Jeremy, or at least Jeremy, as he presents himself, you know, online and in interviews and, um, you know, through his work, it's provocative and it's meant to ruffle feathers and it's going and it's not going to be for everyone and people will be offended and people will maybe take issue with it. But if you go a step beneath that and you actually look at the work devoid of the personality necessarily, it's sound and it (laughs) and it Mm -hmm. and it makes it really, I think, clear and um, important statement about, you know, whether it's, you know, interracial couples, you know, in slave play or, or the sort of, you know, that or um, the relationship between, you know, truth and friendship and race as well in Zola, because I think it, Zola comes, it's about 
it's about race, but it's also about trust (laughs) and who Mm. do you trust and who do you place your trust in and what happens when you misplace your trust and what can happen and losing your agency. I guess like the last thing I'll say here is I kept thinking while watching Zola about the free Britney movement. Like I could not stop thinking about um, Britney Spears and her conservatorship and how she sort of lost complete agency without anyone really even noticing. It all happened in Mm. front of our eyes and we didn't even see it. And sort of the same thing happens to both Stephanie, which is Riley Keough's character, but also really even more so it happens to Zola by way of misplacing her trust in the same way that probably Britney Spears put her trust in, you know, her father and her family. The way that Zola sort of, you know, trusts Stephanie to, you know, give her an opportunity, you know, she ends up losing almost all of her agency and is trapped and stuck in, you know, this absolute nightmare situation and just has to sort of survive it. And I think another thing about Jeremy, and I promise I'll stop talking to you <laughs> is that he's he's so, and, and Jeremy and Janixa, because this is, you know, it's both, it's clearly, I mean, it's Janixa's movie, who's an amazing filmmaker. They're so fluid and adept and so intimate, they're so intimately familiar with the internet and how culture, where how we use our phones, what videos we're watching, and all of their references, their video references, and they're sort of, you know, if there's a lot of staring at your phone or look at this YouTube clip, they all serve the story. I mean, there's a scene where there's a woman who's, you know, in a, her car is stuck in mud, the wheels are spinning, and she's like, I'm stuck, and then we cut to Zola, and she's, it's literally her. <laughs> it's the same situation. So I think that level of, you know, internet acuity and it's so important in telling a story that is so of the Internet as Zola. Mm-hmm. Just I wanted to jump quickly on what you're saying about losing your agency, because the way that the the film shows Zola kind of like trapped in this road trip from hell, which I think is a situation we can all, you know, we've, we've all been at some kind of party. We desperately want to leave. Um, but how it references her reclaiming that agency through telling the story, like with the tweet noises and with like you, it cuts to her eyes and you can kind of see her drafting the tweet in the future. It's a really interesting like meta adaptation element that is so hard to pull off, but it's so like kind of effortlessly threaded through it without taking you out of the immediacy of this situation that she's going through. Absolutely. And like, yeah, and even her, you know, her internal, like the the moments that we get her internal monologue and the expert way that they do that in a way to sort of keep it from, you know, becoming salacious just for the point of, you know, being salacious. I, you know, I read an article uh, from Jeremy and Janik said that they were made a point of not having any female nudity and having a lot of male nudity yeah. um, in the film. And so every time, you know, a character was about to have sex, like Zola would just say, and then they have sex, which is, you know, which again shows us her agency in telling the story, but also is a really artful way to sort of keep it from devolving into you know, uh, another film that, you know, displays women's bodies just for the dis- sake of displaying women's bodies. Doesn't she say something like, and then they start fucking, it was Yeah, gross. So and then they like... start fucking. <laughs> I like, and, can and I like, say that on this podcast? <laughs> well, I guess, guess, guess we have. <laughs> yeah, she's like, and then they start fucking, which is like, which is exactly <laughs> like, and it gets across everything that that moment is. Um, and then we keep moving along as she goes from moment to moment and she's sort of trapped in this sort of never ending nightmare cycle where she has truly no way to escape. And yet her ingenuity and her her smarts, her she's also running the show and she orchestrates her escape by being better at, you know, the pimp Coleman Domingo, who's incredible. I'm so, so happy, so happy that Coleman is getting the work that he has always deserved. Um, he's be- she's better at his job than he is. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, 
all the stuff having to do with Stephanie. So yeah, I think it's it's so it's a it's an art it's a it's a gorgeous art film about subject and subject matter that doesn't that doesn't typically get treated with such like time and weight and and grace. Um, but it's still really fucking funny. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. Yeah, I'm so interested and I can't wait to hear Riley Kios. Is that breaking the fourth wall that I haven't heard the interview yet? No, um, <laughs> no, because I, I conducted it. So, you know, okay, it's I, you. I can't wait to hear because that part is really, cha- she does it. Well, I think Taylor Page does a really wonderful job. I think Coleman, as I said, really, it's a sort of similar to Brokeback. It's sort of like an acting. There are like five really fantastic actors who really all nail um, their their sort of tricky roles that they have to play, specifically uh, Riley Keough, that is an intimidating part that I think a lot of people might not have wanted to take on, given sort of the accent work that was involved and like the and where how sort of dark it gets. So I I can't wait to hear how she talks about sort of like crafting that voice, that sort of you know catch me outside. How about you know that sort of like yeah. white girl, if, you know, affecting an AAVE, you know, black scent, if you will, um, and how she really like. It felt, I know, I know those Stephanie, I know Stephanie's, I grew up with people like <laughs> Stephanie. So I knew, you know, I, I know those people do exist, whether or not that's, you know, you know, that is politically correct or not. That yeah. is America. That is absolutely out in this world. So I think it's, it's sort of a brave really brave performance on Taylor's part, but also on Riley Keough's part as well. Yeah, well, we should just go right into the interview then, because that is one of the first things we talked about. And she really kind of downplayed the the courage it took to take took to take this part, kind of like Jake Gyllenhaal and Brokeback Mountain. Oh, I think we Jake should give her more of credit. her, yeah, because um, it is really hard. And I, you know, I really wanted to ask her about like taking on that role and kind of being on the set with a with a black director and with black cast members and kind of playing this appropriative character who's like you know taking this culture that does not belong to her in a way that can be offensive when you encounter it and can still even if you know that it's a character, it can be kind of difficult to be around. And she talked about that and just kind of like following Janixa's lead. Like, you know, she wouldn't have done this part if it wasn't for Janixa working with her on it and like asking for that specifically. Um, so so let's, yeah. So go ahead, go ahead, Chris. Oh, I'll just say the last thing is about Riley Keough and, and that part. It was so, whenever she got sort of uncomfortable, it would sort of fall away, right? Whenever sort of blackness mm-hmm. wasn't serving her or appropriating black culture wasn't serving her, it would somewhat fall away in a way that we have seen before on television. It was so reminiscent of, and this is a deep cut, but of uh, Flavor of Love back in the day. There was a character, <laughs> Buck Wild, who was a very much a Stephanie type where she was absolutely appropriating black culture and, and speaking AAVE and was very in confrontation and whatnot. But the minute shit hit the fan for her and you know she was about to get sent home and she felt unsafe, all of that affectation, all of it sort of fell away in a way that you could sort of see with Stephanie um, and Riley Keough that when she got uncomfortable, a lot of that sort of that pretense and that that attitude that she sort of put on, that she dressed up in, you know, in order to, you know, feel cool or whatever sort of fell away. So I just thought it was just really, really telling about not only cultural appropriation, but how white people use cultural appropriation when it serves them and how quickly they'll they'll discard it and they're you know the stephanie part of the film which hopefully doesn't give anything away sort of shows that oh when blackness isn't serving me and when and when taking on black culture doesn't serve me anymore or this relationship with zola doesn't serve me anymore i will throw it away as Mm. quickly as possible and the at stephanie portion of the film i think does a really amazing heightened job of showing how quickly and how easy it is for uh white people to to do that and I just was like oh I was like this is hitting so many 
really difficult topics in such a like artful, hilarious and gorgeous way. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a perfect intro. Let's hear the interview with Riley Keough. How are you doing? I know this, this is like your final press push. Or I it's hope it is. Final push. I'm doing well. Yeah, I'm just like trying to enjoy every last moment of this journey with Zola. What a it's, journey. It's been really beautiful. So I'm just trying to kind of take it all in. And it's today, it's, you know, it's our premiere day. So it's it feels like it's all over. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you later, but I should just ask you now because, you know, this journey stretches all the way back to Sundance and you've done press and talked to people about this movie for, you know, at Sundance and there was a long break. And now... What have you noticed about what people want to know about the movie and like has it changed since Sundance? Like are the are the questions you're getting asked evolving over the course of of Zola's journey? I think that people are asking, you know, similar questions. I think a lot of people are interested in like my relationship with the Twitter thread when I read it. Yeah. Uh, when, you know, what that experience was like for me if I was able to experience that in 2015 with the rest of the world. Um that seems to be what a lot of people are interested in and then I think you know, my relationship with Taylor, I yeah. think people, people find, you know, I don't know, interesting or, or sweet. So they, people, people ask about that a lot. You guys did such a sweet photo shoot together though. Like I hadn't thought about it. And then I watched the, one of the interviews you guys did together. And I was like, oh, this is what a, what a great thing to be captured coming out of uh, the way the relationship is on screen versus, versus you guys in real life. It's lovely. I, yeah, I mean, it is, it is, I'm so thankful for our relationship and even if the movie turned out to be horrible, which <laughs> I I think I'm proud of it. I think it's a great movie. Um, we always kind of said, you know, we made some amazing friends and had the most amazing experience that it and that's what it's really about. You know, it's about it's about the experience you have when you're when you're performing. And the rest is just a bonus. Yeah. I love the way that you've described Stephanie in interviews as just very plain and simple a demon, um, which I'm guessing is something that came up with you and Janexa in the early conversations about the character. Was that was that the definition of her from the very beginning um, of taking on this role? I mean, since I can remember, she's been referred to as a demon. <laughs> you know, she's a she's a she's a evil incarnation. She's a she's complicated. She's a, she's a villain, but you know, all villains are have had their fair share of trauma and hardship. So there's that too. Yeah. So I try, try and empathize as well with her. So what were those early conversations with Janixa? Because I know, you know, she was so gung-ho about you taking on the role. She seemed so confident about you doing it. And it seems like you went into to it pretty fearlessly too, even though this character is so villainous and so complicated that uh, I can imagine a lot of people being scared off by it. So, so what did Janixa kind of give you from the start of playing her? To start, I was not afraid. I wasn't afraid because I trusted Janika and I trust her vision and her, what she wanted to communicate and her kind of, you know, her, she's, she's, she's brilliant. And in anyone else's hands, I would have been afraid. I think if I felt afraid, I wouldn't have done it. Mm -hmm. And I felt excited and honored to work with Janixa and to be a part of this story and this film and this adaptation. And it felt like a moment and it felt like something that I, I had never seen or read before. And I just felt, I felt very excited. And yeah, I, I think that I, I think that I, I definitely try my hardest in everything that I do to be brave and and liberated and free and and create 
the best version of everything I'm doing. And I think, yeah. And, and I, and I understand, I understand that it, you know, it's, it's obviously a wildly offensive character and really intense and, and she is very demonic. <laughs> and so I, I would understand what, how one would be um, afraid to play, play her. But when the intentions behind it are Genixas and um, are very profound, I was just, you know, wanting to be a part of her vision at the end of the day and wanting to deliver um, the best version of, of that that I could yeah. for her. I was so struck by what Janixa said in a different interview about how she's interested in exploring how violent whiteness can be and how mm-hmm. that is such, that's such a part of, of Stephanie's villainy that it is on the surface, but, you know, it's not the, like, the appropriation of her language and the way that she acts and everything like that is such a, a huge part of that. How much did you guys talk about that specifically, not just in what she does to Zola, but in the way she kind of her entire existence is is violent from the very moment you meet her? Yeah, well, the appropriation was on the page as far as I was concerned. Yeah. Um, you know, I very much got that from reading the dialogue, that that the way she spoke, the words she was using, it was very uncomfortable to read, you know. And so then it was just became a conversation with Janixa about what, how she, you know, just getting into detail about what she would look like, what her hair would be like, how how to portray this, you know, offensive sort of appropriation and that was a lot of, you know, the dialect was a huge part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I can't remember the exact early conversations, but they definitely were something basically, you know, go a hundred with it. You know, don't, I don't, she, she didn't want you know, half acid or, or not fully commit to her being as horrible as we could make her, you know? Yeah. And, so then it just became about like sending her voice notes, recording my, myself, trying different versions of an accent. And then I got um, set up with this accent coach named Eris, who I worked with. I would go to her house and then we would just go through the monologues and she would, you know, correct me and help me on, on, you know, how to get the accent right. And I would send Janix of these voice notes and we just came to a place where we were both like, this is, I feel like this is right. This is good. I wanted it to feel like this is how she talks, not that she's putting it on, hmm. you know. Or, Even though she is know? putting it on, right? Like at some point she kind of adopted this yeah, for herself. Of course. Yeah, of course. At some point she adopted it, but I didn't want it to feel like she was, was like a caricature. Yeah. You know, like I wanted it to feel like a silly. Like I wanted it to feel like... Even if she's putting it on, it's authentic in her world. Yeah. Even if she was alone in the room, she would still talk like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, the way that you and Taylor came away from the set kind of having bonded and, you know, obviously making any movie bonds people. But I think about like that dynamic of appropriation and how like how uncomfortable it can be to be around it, even in the context of acting. Like, did you feel like, you know, being around Taylor or anyone else on the set that you kind of when you weren't in character or anything that you you had to help kind of create that comfort level to be able to do that, not just for yourself, but for the other people around you so that everyone was kind of comfortable. Or is that, was that Genix's, uh role in, in creating that environment? I mean, I think, you know, we all became so close very quickly that I, I think there was definitely a, there might've been a, a spoken conversation about how inappropriate she is, you know? Um, but that's, that was part of the story. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't, it wasn't, you know, when you're acting, I mean, it's not, it's not real. So, you know, I think that they, all the other actors were 
able to, you know, differentiate me from Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I definitely, I definitely was cognizant of, of that. And definitely there would have been some like, I'm sorry, this is awful. You know? <laughs> but at the same time, like we created a space where we were all so close and we really had a sense of humor about it. Like there was, you know, it is a dark comedy. It is a comedy, you know, it's, it's, and it's so outrageous that mostly we were all just laughing at ourselves, yeah. you know, like we were all just in hysterics, just like, you know, this is insane. Yeah. This movie <laughs> and these characters. And I think we were all able to, to laugh at it. You know, I think that's part of some, you know, I guess maybe that says something about how we, how we all process trauma on the yeah. set of Zola, but but definitely there was laughter. Um, and, and then also just like a very deep and profound connection between Taylor and I, Janixa and I, and Taylor, uh, Nick Coleman, like we were, I felt very supported and, and, um, we were all just really willing to play and mess around and, and ask questions and be very like the things you sort of normally, you know, say to yourself, talk normally when you're, acting there's a lot of conversations that are going on in your own head Mm -hmm. and and you feel kind of alone of course you have your director but it's kind of like okay should I try this should I do that you know like what am I going to do on this next take do I do the same thing should I try something different and you have your director to talk to the uh, about those things too but with when you're really close with your castmates you have them too Mm -hmm. so it creates this sort of like almost like theater school camp environment where you you're kind of discussing like, okay, wait, should we try this? Should we do that? And you're, and you're able to say that loud and it's very collaborative. And that really happened on this set. And that was so much fun. I wanted to ask about the sequence that's that's really funny where Stephanie starts telling her side of the story. And, you know, you talk about how you you wanted to go big with the character, but how did you leave yourself somewhere to go with the character? Even though she started like way over the top, you had somewhere to go in that sequence where she could be over the top in a completely different way. I think when you start over the top, the only place to go is inside, hmm. you know, and I think that it's like, that's what you're wanting to see. And I think that, you know, when you have like a villain or you have like a really extroverted wild person and it starts at a hundred, like the only place to go from there is what's happening internally. And I think that there were a few moments in the film to explore that. And one of them was when you know she has a moment when Zola gets really angry at her and she's like I want to leave and how could you do this to me and then you see Stephanie for a moment kind of being vulnerable with mm-hmm. Zola you know like I'm sorry I don't want to be here either um and that was a really important moment on the day there was a conversation about playing it two different ways and I I I can't remember I think we may have tried both Mm-hmm. And one of them was one of them was being very clearly manipulative. And uh, the other was being very vulnerable and open with Zola and authentic in her grief and sadness and that feeling real, which, you know, arguably could also be manipulative. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple moments and then there's a moment where like X kind of doesn't pay her. And so you, I think you see these little moments where she feels um, a little bit broken. And I think that, you know, and then she's back to her thing. She's back to her hustle and she's back to being a crazy, 
crazy girl. <laughs> you know, so I think that like, hopefully with these little like breadcrumbs, you can um, penetrate a little deeper into this like villain, you know, villainous woman and and empathize with her and see that she's just doing the best that she can. Yeah. You've played strippers and sex workers a couple times in your career. And I think as, you know, those characters are as old as Hollywood itself, but only more recently have we seen them played with kind of the level of depth that you've been able to do in, in the roles that you've taken. What kind of keeps you coming back? Like what keeps you interested in characters like this who have been around for as long as society has, but so rarely get treated this way? It's funny. I don't know what about me is like screaming to everyone, like, <laughs> sex worker. <laughs> you know, like, it keeps happening. Um, I, you know, it's, it's, I didn't um, consciously go out and decide to, sure, you know, play sex workers a lot. I'm very grateful that I have, and I'm very grateful that I have been given the opportunity to um, learn more about this world because it's something that otherwise I don't think I would have ever explored to the, to the degree that I have mm-hmm. now at this point. And I think that as a female, you know, I think that it's just the more conscious people are becoming of making, uh, in telling female stories, like the more, like there's a variety of them and sex work is one of them. And Mm -hmm. I think women in sex, women liberated in sex is an area that's sort of just, you know, people are just getting into the past five years or so in a way that feels, that feels more accurate, I would say. Yeah. Um, And there's so many different types of sex workers and I've, and relationships that women have with sex and of course there's there's a wild spectrum and there's you know on one side you have a very like liberated sex working experience and then on the other side you have women who are very oppressed and and sort of stuck in uh held hostage and and whose bodies are being sold and so it's a very it's a very complicated you know there's a very uh there's a a lot of different shades in 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 sex work and i think that um it's important to tell all of the stories you know yeah. and 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 you know there is bias around it for people people have reactions to it and i think that um the more stories that are people can see and you, and then and that's what's great about film is you have two hours with somebody that you otherwise would never spend time with <laughs> yeah I'm curious about how you think about yourself and when you're going into playing a role like this that's, you know, like um, Stephanie, she's a stripper, she's dancing, her body is like kind of a big part of the way that she operates. And Mm -hmm. do you think about your own body differently when you're playing roles like that versus something else? Like, does it change the way that you move or the way that you take care of yourself, the way that you think of yourself when when you've stepped into a character who is using her body professionally in that way? Absolutely. I mean, it's like the one thing I can sort of liken it to is like, if you, I don't know, like, I don't know if you've ever done like visual meditations or visualizations mm-hmm. and you have someone talking to you and they're kind of just like pumping you up and they're like, you know, you're amazing and you're, or whatever, or a friend or your parent or something mm-hmm. that's like, you're incredible and you're beautiful, you're, you're lover, you know, you're sexy or whatever. And that has an effect on you. Mm-hmm. Like you, you walk out and your ego is like, oh, wow. You know? <laughs> and so acting is a very similar thing, but you do it to yourself, you know, kind of. Yeah. Like it, it, it's, I mean, it's not that you're doing that. It's not that I'm doing that, but it's like you, you're, it's like you're, you're changing your mentality for a minute, you know? Yeah. And it's a interesting exercise in life to be able to try and do that, you know, when you're not feeling great about things or you're, 
you know, just to, to see like, is this something that I could change? Could mm-hmm. I change my thought pattern, you know, for a minute? And I think that um, I'm not in like Riley's mindset about like, oh, you know, I'm not feeling whatever. I don't, whatever that is for the day. Like you're, you're definitely like elsewhere when you're performing. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and as an actor, like, you know, you dress up, you go to red carpets, you get to, you know, look fantastic or as a model, what you were previously. But when you're embodying a character who's doing something like that, it's it's a totally different headspace. It's a it's a funny kind of transformation that you get to do. Totally. And it's really it's very interesting and it's very sort of um, mystical to me. Yeah. And like, cool. and you're you know, you're you're taking on the persona of another person. And so it's very it actually makes like the fact that you are a spirit very evident to me. Hmm. Because you kind of tra- you're able to transcend that a little bit and go like, oh, I can, I don't have to think this way in this moment. You know, it's like my whole life could be falling apart. And the minute that I'm on set and I'm playing a role and I have to be doing that and there's adrenaline and I have to, you know, the stakes are high and I need to play this character, it, everything goes away. And that in itself is a very interesting thing that human beings are capable of. And spiritual, the way that you're talking about it. It's, and very spiritual. I've never heard anyone describe it in that way. It's like the, it's like on a different plane of existence. That's that's a really cool way to think about it. I mean, that sounds like, I, I mean, it sounds like so, so uh, egotistical. A bit. <laughs> but when you put it that it's way. So, but it's it's so personal though, right? Like no one, no one can know what it's like to be in your head when you do that. Totally. Yeah, it's, it is, a, but it is a spiritual experience for me. And, and uh, I think, I think that, a lot of people find that in whatever they they love doing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that 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 flow thing that you hear about, where you you get into it and you're you're somewhere else entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask because you met your husband on a movie set and you've talked about how you know the cast of Zola, you guys were going through this entire experience together and it was bonding. What is it about movie sets that like throws people together? And obviously, we hear stories about when it goes terribly wrong, but you've had experiences where it goes so well. Why does it bond people to such an intense degree? I mean, I think it's making films sometimes are harder than people would imagine. Not all of them. Sometimes, sometimes it's, it's very, uh, it's kind of this like secret that I've, that actors keep that, Mm. you know, we know that you can't say that out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with Mad Mad Max, at least I think on screen, everyone's like, oh my God, that looked really hard to make. (laughs) That one was out in the open. Yeah. I mean, I think you can't, actors can't say, oh my gosh, this is so hard. Sure. like. Oh my, like, come on, you know, but the truth is, is that there are jobs that are very psychologically difficult, um, emotionally, mentally, you have to throw yourself into states of a lot of the time trauma Mm -hmm. or fear or anxiety or, you know, and you're kind of existing there for long periods of time. Like Mad Max is a great example. Like the mindset that we have to be in is pretty intense for you know the whole day it's Mm -hmm. like you're panting you're you know even if you're not you know fully emotionally going there your body is in a state of uh, a panting fear fearful breathing like you're you're Mm -hmm. doing stuff your nervous system that's like very draining you know especially mad max mad max was you have that and then you also have the fact that it was like eight months away from home you know we didn't see anybody we loved we were we were kind of isolated and stuck in the middle of nowhere and um and then it was physically challenging it was really hot and really cold and really dusty and rugged and and you know i think i'm a pretty tough person when it comes to those things but it was pretty intense and 
So I think when you go through anything intense with somebody, you bond with them, you know? Yeah. That one was definitely at the top of the in, intense uh, intensity. It's list. hard to imagine. I hope you never top that. <laughs> I think that's, you yeah. got to leave it there. I mean, that was, but at the same time, it was be- a be- like one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had in my life. And I would never do it again. <laughs> I'm joking. I, it was so challenging. It was such a challenge. And we all have felt the same way. And, 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 and in that way, that kind of bonds you forever. Yeah. Like you have experience that nobody else in the world has had. Yeah. Other than you, you guys, you know, Mad Max and um, Zola were similar in that I like made very, very good friends. And there, I mean, they were di- very different in, in many ways, but in that sense, like on Mad Max, I may, you know, those guys are some of my best lifelong friends and same, same with Zola. So when, when you step onto a set that doesn't have that kind of intensity of experience, are you disappointed or you're like, okay, no, I don't have, I don't have emotional bandwidth for something else like this. I just need to go to work and go home. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I love, I love when it feels, when it feels you know, fun and easy, you know, like that's, <laughs> that's amazing. And Zola did, Zola felt like that, yeah. you know, Zola was, Zola for me, um, I know Janix's experience would be different because she was directing, which is, uh, you know, really, really challenging. But for me, Zola was like very joyful, a very joyful experience and very playful and, and fun. So it was not, it wasn't, you know, as challenging and as challenging. Yeah. In terms of like psychologically and physically challenging as Mad Max was. But that was a job where going to work every day was just like, I cannot wait to wake up in the morning. I felt so blessed. I was just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I was so, you know, just every moment I was just trying to take in and, and be like, this is, this is amazing. Yeah. Um, We've been doing a, a series of book recommendations every month. And we've just been asking anyone we talk to uh, if you've read anything good lately that you would want to recommend to people. Wow. It's funny. I got asked this the other day. Really? I'm actually reading the Tibetan book of the dead at the moment. And I, and I, that was my recommendation because it's really, I I'm really enjoying the, my, I mean, I'm into this kind of thing. So I think you have to be kind of interested in, in that spirituality and yeah. those kinds of things. I, I really am enjoying that. And I would definitely recommend, <laughs> recommend it to anybody. Anyone who's, who's prepared to handle it, I guess. Anyone who's prepared. Yeah. Who's, who's interested in, you know, death and, and things like that. Yeah. I will, I will take that recommendation. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to me. I hope you get a nice long break uh, after this big push for Zola. Uh, you have definitely earned it. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm very excited about Zola and I'm so happy to be here and, and grateful for your time. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week with another Oscar flashback. We're going to keep these going as long as we can because they're extremely fun. Uh, you can find us at Vanity Fair. You can find um, lots of writing about the awards news that we discussed. Uh, Richard will be uh, writing from Cannes as of next week, and hopefully you'll hear from him on the show too, kind of talking about what's going on there. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Joanna. Joe wrote this. And David. David Canfield, 97. And Chris. You can text with us, as many of you did about Brokeback Mountain. We'd love to hear from you. Go to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text us at 718-550-2059. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And the award for the best way to describe kind of every year at the Oscars now goes to Katie Rich. 
This was a problematic year, guys. <laughs> 